thing that was really helping me to get the best out of myself, what had worked really well for me with other businesses and entrepreneurs I'd worked with, was lifting the lid, taking the shackles off, creating that intellectual freedom, that physical freedom, giving people the autonomy to make choices. Welcome to the Resilient Recruiter Podcast. This is your host, Mark Whitby. I'm delighted to be joined today by Sarah Demmer. Sarah is the CEO at SF Group, a specialist recruitment firm headquartered in the Midlands. Since 1998, SF Group has placed over 40,000 people, and they've been recognized as one of the top 20 companies to work for in the UK. Sarah joined SF Group in 2018. Previously, she was the UK CEO and CFO at Ignata, where she played a key role in building the group to over $40 million in revenue. Her knowledge of recruitment and talent solutions was honed during six years spent at Deloitte with their M&A strategy team, where she was involved in a number of high-profile deals in the recruitment sector. Sarah, welcome. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Fantastic. So I heard about you through James Kahn, who's been on the show. How do you know James? Um, yes, I was introduced to James seven years ago through um, a ex-colleague. Uh, he was looking for somebody who had an a background in recruitment, M&A and strategy. And I was one of the rare people um, in a transaction services background who fitted the bill. So we got talking and uh, that's how I came to work with him. Oh, wow. Fantastic. I, I'm looking forward to hearing more about that story. So you started your career at Deloitte and in the M&A strategy team. How how did that lead to joining the recruitment industry? Um, yeah, so uh, as as many people in recruitment talk about, I just fell into it. Even though I wasn't in recruitment at the time, I, I somehow <laughs> found myself falling into it um, as well. Um, I came to the M&A world fresh from university, uh, didn't know a whole lot about any particular sector, which is one of the beauties of, of being in an environment like Deloitte, where you get exposure to lots of different industries, lots of different Uh, business leadership types growth strategies and one of my very first clients was uh, a big recruitment business at the time they were called Air Energy back then they're Air Swift now and they were going through their very first uh, management buyout private equity backed and I was fortunate enough to have been part of the team so I learned a huge amount um, it's my kind of entry into recruitment really that first deal and then um, as the business was growing and our we were doing more and more work in recruitment. Of course, having had that first um, experience of that first deal, I then worked on the next one and the next one and the next one. And back in those days, it was when the private equity world had really started piling into recruitment. It was, you know, the hot asset that everybody wanted. There was lots of money to be made. It was growing fast. And so um, I worked on some of the biggest, uh, fastest growing deals at the time in oil and gas, in healthcare, in education, professional services. Um, and there were a number of private equity houses that were quite um, prolific in the sector who who I did multiple deals with. So, yes, uh, the typical recruitment story in many ways happened by accident, but um, I'm glad it happened the way it did. Fantastic. So then you made the switch from a big corporate into an investing firm. Um, so how how did that work out? Um, yeah, so I got to a point where I just decided I uh, fancied doing it for myself, um, made the jump from a huge big corporate where you know everything's taken care of it's a machine you're very much a cog in the wheel to a much much smaller fund that was at the very beginnings and it was building and and actually the thing that always sticks in my mind as being the biggest challenge on day one was 
um, being shocked to discover that there was no station recovered. I couldn't get my head around how a company could not have a station <laughs> recovered. And the, the lady who was our uh, team assistant would ask me, what do you want? And I'd say a pen and she'd just find a pen from a table and hand it to me. And I'd say, but where did the pen come from? And I think once I, once I got my head around the fact that in a smaller environment, you create things from nothing and that, you know, there isn't the structure, there isn't a person to do everything, you're it. Um, you know, I remember it, that was kind of day three, it all kind of dawned on me. So a bit of a culture shock. Um, but then, you know, once I settled into it, actually, um, you know, eight, almost eight years later, it's a much more fulfilling and, and exciting environment to be in, probably. Amazing. So what were some of the challenges you faced um, having gone from that big corporate cog in a machine into an investment firm, much smaller, more entrepreneurial, you know, um, what's, you know, obviously you're a, um, yeah, uh, you, that must have been quite a learning curve for you. What, uh, what were some of the early challenges? Yeah, so a, a couple of things, really. I think in an entrepreneurial environment, when it's all on you, uh, I often say that the highs are very high, but the lows are very low, because when it goes well, you did it. When it goes badly, you did it. And um, not everybody's cut out for that. Now, for me personally, one of the reasons I loved being in the M&A world was because it, it was very roller coaster like you know, you work really long, really late hours, big push to get a deal over the line, and then you relax for a week or so, and then you go again, and it's ups and downs. Uh, but that roller coaster, the highs became even higher and the lows became even lower. Um, the learning curve in terms of you doing everything. Um, I first arrived as head of M&A, but I was doing the marketing. I was doing sales. I was, I was doing all sorts of things. And um, being able to you know, keep your brain focused on so many different things and, and do them well is quite a challenge. Um, but you get used to it quite quickly. And of course, you adjust. And then I, I think the second thing, um, really more from a, um, a personal perspective, was around coming into an environment where everybody was an entrepreneur and I came with this corporate badge uh, and I looked and sounded corporate and um, I had a degree from Oxford and I'd been to Deloitte and I, I looked very different to a lot of the entrepreneurs who had um some of them had gone to university, some of them had started straight from school, started their own businesses, um, had been doing that grind for uh, a while in a, in a very different way than I had. And um, coming into an environment like that and winning people over and, and showing how I could add value to them and how I could help them to be even more successful than they already were, it definitely took you know a lot of charm, a lot of personality, a lot of determination to say, I know there's value I can add here and I'm I'm determined to to show you so that um you give me permission to be part of your world. Um and and that that takes time, you know, in any people environment, you've got to uh you've got to work hard at those relationships, you've got to earn your stripes in any, especially when you're new into any business. Um but uh yes, we got there and um once I had, you know, really settled into it. I found there was a lot more of the uh, inner entrepreneur in me than I'd maybe recognized back in the early stages of my career. Fantastic. So let me just make sure I understand. Um, you were working with portfolio companies, mm -hmm. is that That's right? right yeah. And what was your role? What were you there to um, to do? Yeah, so I had a few different roles. Um, to begin with, I was just buying businesses to create a group. 
once we created the group, I was promoted up to CFO. So, um, of course, you know, financial responsibility there, but I'm not a, a trained accountant by background. So it was less of a financially focused role and much more around creating shareholder value, creating growth, all of the things, you know, that people that own businesses care about that's going to ultimately make the money, create that wealth for them. And um, I became quite operational over time as well. So supporting them to set their businesses up in the right way, supporting them to um, think about how to best invest limited funds, limited time, limited resources to get the best return, to get the best outcome, get them as close to their own longer term goals as they wanted to. And then the third piece of that really, um, I then moved into, I was promoted into being UK CEO. So the UK portfolio of Ignata. And at that point, I had six different businesses um, who I was working with in a very similar role, but much more all encompassing then. So it went from not just being around um, creating shareholder value. Then at that point, it was around people, around talent attraction, around um, brand growth, you know, still a lot of the same things about how do we make smart investment decisions? How do we structure ourselves in the right way to grow, grow at the pace that we want to and grow in the way that we want to? Um, so um, I feel like I've really been on a journey, actually, all the way from, you know, very, very targeted support of entrepreneurs through to a bit of a wider remit that was, you know, finance plus, and then really to moving into, you know, just the full package of the million and one things it takes to run a business successfully and, and really being that coach and mentor for those people because, you know, a lot of them knew their businesses extremely well, had done a great job and they just were looking for somebody that would come in as that, you know, outside help, um, a fresh pair of eyes, somebody to bounce off. Um, I think a lot of people, the more senior they get, um, can feel like they should know all the answers and that they shouldn't need anybody else. But actually, the higher up you go, the lonelier it gets. And the almost the more important it is that you have those voices, you have those people that you trust, you have the person that you can just ring and swear and complain because you've had a bad day and let off that steam, um, who's on your side and who you trust and you know that it's a safe environment. And so, um, that, so that's what the role became. Um, and then um, after that, I then, I then moved into um, the uh, role that I'm in today, running uh, just SF. So went from a portfolio role into um, a bit more hands-on into, into one of the businesses that had previously been in my portfolio. Oh, I see. Okay. That all makes sense how that's, yeah. uh, how that's worked out. Fantastic. So um, since you've been with uh, SF for, is it four years now? Yeah. Thereabouts. Um, I know that one of the things that you're really passionate about is employee <laughs> engagement, and that is demonstrated in the awards that you guys have won. Um Talk to me about what that means at SF and how you have uh, promoted employee engagement. Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, it's important to tell a bit of the history of this, actually. So um, when I first started working with SF, it was a very traditional business um, run uh, like a bit of a machine. We used to hire lots of graduates. We um, Some of them worked out, some of them didn't, you know, as is the case in most recruitment businesses that hire graduates. And, um, you know, like a lot of the recruitment businesses that had done very well in, in the you know, early 2000s, the uh, 2010s, it, it was quite KPI driven, quite rigid. You come in at a certain time, you do what's expected, you go home, um, not much flexibility. And um, for me, having grown up in an environment where 
uh, as a consultant, you know, day one, you're fresh out of university, you're handed a laptop and a phone and told that the world is your hot desk, go and make money. It felt quite alien to me. And, and I knew that um, once I had made that switch into an entrepreneurial environment, the thing that was really helping me to get the best out of myself and what had worked really well for me with other businesses and entrepreneurs I'd worked with was lifting the lid, taking the shackles off, creating that intellectual freedom, that physical freedom, um, giving people the autonomy to make choices. Even if they don't choose different things than what you'd already asked them to do, it was them that chose it. And that that empowering of people unlocks a whole different level of performance. And I personally feel very passionately that, you know, I would never want to go back to a, you know, big corporates are great training grounds. But if you are somebody who has that entrepreneurial flair in you, it's not the place that gets the best out of you. And so um, with a starting point of people who do have that entrepreneurial flair in them are the bulk of, of what we have in SF. So let's cater to that audience. Um, with that as a starting point, we started the process in 2018 when I first joined to really turn the business on its head. But it, it with any culture change, it takes time. So when COVID came along, it actually gave us a catalyst to do what we had started to do, but you know, really speed up the process, rip the plaster off and just make it happen in, in one go. So what did we do? Um, we did away with a lot of the structure. So we now have work wherever, whenever, however, um, the choice is yours. You've got to deliver, you've got to do your job. But how you do that, if you can do your job and be successful by only working two hours a week, then good for you. You're brilliant. Only work the two hours. That's fine. Some people, um, you know, I know personally, I tend to get into a zone around 5 to 7 p.m., um, so I tend to start a bit later in the morning and I kind of get really into things at that time. If that's how you need to work, that's fine. The choice is yours. And all of the things in and around that, that you know, lots of businesses have done now since the flexibility that has come because of COVID. So that was really the first thing. But then the next thing was taking the intellectual shackles off. And that's been the really important change in the business is to stop telling people how to do their job. You know, there's that old adage, isn't there, about why hire people who are smarter than you and then tell them what to do is very much around. We have very experienced, talented people in our business. So let's let them go and do, do whatever they want. Let's let them behave in the way that they would behave if it was our own business. And let's stop being a one size fits all. Let's create a collection of small mini businesses within a business and give that autonomy to the individual managers, directors, managing directors to lead their teams in the way that works for them. And, you know, when you lift the lid in that way and people have been working in an environment where they haven't had that for a long time, it can be a bit daunting, actually. And it takes people time to warm up into it. Um, you know, when when we've asked people for what do you want to do differently, they've not necessarily known the answer to begin with. And then three months later, they come back to you having learned how to use their newfound freedom. And suddenly they've got a list of 20 things that they feel incredibly passionate about and they've always wanted to do, they just weren't used to actually having to use their brain to think about it. So that's been the next step, you know, really tapping into that intellectual freedom. And then the final thing has been backing that up then with real, um, you know, putting our money where our mouth is. We've introduced an employee ownership scheme. So every single person in the business has a stake in the profits. Um, and that's, you know, right from top to bottom, regardless of seniority, tenure, job title, anything, absolutely everybody has it. 
And um, we have created what we call the SF Experience, which is our employer brand. The aim is to tick every possible box that somebody could be looking for within their employer. Um, a great environment to be successful. You know, do I look around and see people who are talented, people who I want to learn from, people who bill more than I've ever billed, people who uh, I think can teach me how to do similar things to what they've done. Is this an environment where I'm going to be well rewarded, you know, particularly in recruitment? Yes, it's important to enjoy your job, but it's a very highly financially driven um, sector. So we've got to be paying top quartile, which we do. We're very transparent about that with our people as well. We do regular benchmarking. Um, and then finally, do I actually have a life at the end of it all to go and enjoy this success and this money? Because if I'm doing brilliantly, but I never see my family and I only get, you know, 20 days of holiday, well, then what's the point of it all? So, um, you know, really making sure we've got generous packages uh, across the board and um, leaving people in a situation where all of their major needs are met. For us, that's what a, a truly employee centric um, model is. It's putting our people's needs first so that they're at their best. And then in turn, they will make sure that the service they're providing to our clients and candidates is also at its best. Um, you know, because we all know what, what a difference it makes when you're dealing with a happy person versus a, a not happy person. Um, so it's worked brilliantly for us so far. I mean, the proof is in the pudding. We've been, we've been growing really well and um, the productivity has, um, has really improved on the back of those changes as well. Amazing, I love that story. Thank you for sharing it. Would you like to make the transition from pure contingency to being a retained recruiter? Do you want to be respected as a true business partner by your clients while increasing your average fee? If so, then clearly you need to do something different. You can't just keep doing what you're doing and expect a different result. Our sponsor, iIntro, gives you a turnkey solution for winning retained searches and managed service agreements at higher fees. You will take business away from your competitors because you can actually show the client a unique methodology in a very tangible way and demonstrate conclusively how you will improve their staff retention and reduce their total cost per hire while also saving hours of management time. If you'd like to see how iIntro can help you to grow your recruitment business and increase your average fees, just go to recruitmentcoach.com forward slash retained. Book a free consultation. There's no obligation, and if you mention that you listen to this podcast, iIntro have pledged to offer you a 25% discount on any of their services. Just go to recruitmentcoach.com forward slash retained to get started. I read somewhere that you've had a 60% uplift in productivity, but I didn't really know how, what that meant or how that was measured. Um, yeah, uh, I don't, I'm not sure if 60% is the right number, but um, I mean, in, okay. in headline terms, when I first joined in 2018, the average um, that we were operating at was around 8K per person per month. Um, mm -hmm. And we didn't actually include new people in that back then. And so it was probably, the true average is probably a bit lower. Today, it's running at 18K per person per month. And that does include wow. every individual in the business. Um, so even if somebody just joined this month, um, they're included in that. So uh, as you can see, I think the 60% might have been on an annual basis, but um, you know, more than doubling in you know, three, three and a bit years um, 
obviously. That's fantastic. Yeah, we're very pleased with that. And it, it didn't all happen at once. It's gone up, you know, gently each year, eight to 10 to 13, and then, you know, a big jump this year to 18. Got it. So we're talking about productivity as a, uh, measured by, you know, gross profit per employee mm-hmm. or yeah, you right. know, something mm-hmm. like that. Yeah, fantastic. So um, the employee share ownership scheme is uh, is brilliant. Um, I'd like to learn more about the SF experience, but you you quickly skimmed over work when, where, and how mm-hmm. you want. What does that in a practical sense, what does that really look like on a day-to-day mm-hmm. basis for, you know, for the employees at SF? Uh, yes. Um, so every business has its own personality, um, you know, right the way through from the way the office spaces look, um, the way that they design their time, their days, and the choices that they make about how uh, how they want to work. So as a blanket rule across the company, you can uh, work in the way that's best for you. But because we are all social creatures and salespeople, you know, like to be in an environment together, you know, there's obviously lots of benefits to having the team in the office together. They've all uh, chosen different structures. So one business has everybody in on a Monday and then the rest of the week it's up to them. So in that business, a lot of the younger ones like to come in, um, partly because they probably don't have as big homes where they can get lots of private space to work. They like being around other people. They might not have families yet, so they want to come in and make friends. Um, sometimes when we've got new people who've joined, you know, the managers and the teams will come in and really, you know, kind of put that arm around and make sure that they feel there's an environment, but it's flexed as we go. Then we've got other businesses that will come in every Tuesday and Thursday and not any other days. And it's a whole mix of spectrums really based on what works for each team. And then within that, if there's a particular week when in the office where people come in on a Monday, somebody doesn't, can't, or, you know, we've had instances where someone's got a wedding they're going to next week and they want to make sure they definitely don't catch anything uh, that would stop them from going, then they don't come. They just zoom in. It's it's very, very flexible, but with a, with a structure around it that keeps bringing people back together so that we don't lose those connections. So it's very much outcome focused rather than, you know, how many hours you're working. That's what's rewarded and and focused on. Um, There's a really good book by Dan Pink called Drive. And uh, one of the most important factors in what truly motivates people is that autonomy and, you know, having, feeling like they have control, they can make decisions about what they, you know, the work they're doing, how they do it, when they do it, and all that sort of thing. So I, it makes total sense to me. Um, I, I mean, I guess if someone then is, what do you do in a case where someone, though, isn't performing to the level that, you know, you've both agreed is, is um, you know, that they're aiming for, then does that then change the parameters or do you have more um, structure in place for someone like that? You know, how does that really pan out? Because I can see, I I can also see like an experienced person who's got their client base, they're well-established, they great market knowledge. And I can see that working well, but for someone who's earlier in their career, where they may be having more peaks and troughs and they're still really learning, um, I would have thought they do need more guidance, more structure, more direction. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, we've been quite fortunate so far that the situation hasn't arisen yet. Now, we're not daft enough to think that it won't. And um, in that situation, I, I think, you know, with anything, you've got to dig down and see and understand what what's really the root of the issue. Because we're bringing people together quite regularly and because our induction programmes are um, are deliberately designed to give people more face-to-face time at the beginning so that they can have that experience of learning by osmosis as you know a lot of people did early in their careers um, we, we do have that wraparound care um, we do have regular touch points we do have the structure in place um, it hasn't happened yet so it's difficult to answer the question but I think if we felt that the flexible working and not being in the office was the driver we would do something about that on a temporary basis until we fix the problem um, but I think from experience, it tends to be a whole load of other things. And, you know, often it, it comes down to the drive and the, the focus and the understanding that the person has of what they're trying to achieve and, and how best to get there that usually is the root of the problem. And some of that can be solved by being in and around other people and seeing how they do it. But as you know, a lot of the solution is down to the individual just going away and, and putting 100% in. So I suspect even when it does happen, it will be a combination of different things that, that we need to do. Um, but, it, you know, if you were to ask me, would we ever completely take the flexibility away? No, because I, I'm a firm believer that, you know, as you just said, people are at their best when they are able to make choices. Um, so you take that away from somebody and I think you make them less likely to be successful. Uh, you just have to help them to understand where the parameters are, where um, that they need to use that flexibility within so as to not hamper their own success. Okay. I guess that makes sense. Um, I am a firm believer in knowing your numbers. I think I find metrics incredibly helpful and valuable in order to manage and optimize my own performance. And I'm just wondering if some, like to what extent when you're saying you don't impose KPIs, but to what extent do you enable people to, um, you know, to measure the, uh, the the sort of leading indicators and the milestones that uh, result in the placements and the billings? Yeah, it's a bit of a funny one, actually. I think in most businesses, the leadership would say that they're constantly focusing on the KPIs and the, and the team maybe not paying so much attention. It's probably the opposite way around um, for us. Uh, we're very outcome and results focused, but our team are, you know, smart enough and, and experienced enough to understand that you don't get the outcome and the results without the inputs. And so, you know, they've all been working in their markets for a long time and they know this is what I need to do each week. I need this many meetings. I need this many calls. I need, you know, this many interviews and, and jobs on. And they will hold themselves to account on that. It, within reason, with the flexibility that, you know, if I didn't do it one week, I'm not going to beat myself up as long as I'm averaging out over a month and a quarter. But I think because many um, people who are successful in recruitment, as you say, they have that very rigorous, structured approach. Um, it, it, it's almost happening of its own accord and self-managing. And of course, it comes back to hiring the right type of people who who do think that way and do understand it. But when you have those people and you can entrust them to, I suppose, KPI themselves, 
then it, it all takes care of itself, really. And, you know, it sounds easy. And sometimes, you know, if somebody's having a tough time and they've lost their way a bit, it does take somebody uh, else to just sit down with them and say, right, let's think this through. What are you doing at the moment? Talk me through how you're spending your time. And and sometimes people do lose sight of it because, you know, we're all human and sometimes you need a, a different voice just to, um, you know, tap you back in the right direction. Um, but again, you know, if you've got people who are being given trust and behaving with maturity and know to come and ask and say, mm, I've, I'm losing my way a little bit here, can you give me a hand? And of course, you know, as a leadership team, it's our job to spot those moments as well and and be ready waiting to provide the assistance when people ask for it um then then generally you know you can get people back on on track quite quickly but but you're right you know the KPIs are well well let's say the activity it's always there underneath the surface it just doesn't necessarily need to be managed and and measured in a in a rigorous way anymore got it all right that's cool Before I go to my next question, I'd like to share one of the keys to my success in recruitment and in business. You may have noticed that a lot of the people I interview on this show have a coach. That's not a coincidence. Most high achievers have a coach, including me. I've worked with various coaches over the last 20 years, and it's been a huge factor in my own personal and business growth. Here's why. Sometimes it's hard to see the forest for the trees, and it really helps to take a step back and look at how you can improve the business and get a fresh outside perspective from someone who's bringing new ideas and insights to the table. Plus, as a business owner, who is holding you accountable and helping you stay on track? So I wanna encourage you, if you're not already working with a coach, get one. It doesn't have to be me. There are plenty of amazing coaches out there. Just find someone who you believe will add measurable value to your business and can help you get to the next level. If you do want to explore a coaching relationship with me, then you're welcome to apply for a free 30-minute strategy session at recruitmentcoach.com forward slash breakthrough. This is not a sales call. My number one objective is to help you to get clear on your goals, identify the roadblocks that are holding you back, and create a strategic plan to increase your billings and grow your business. I promise you'll leave our session feeling focused, re-energized, and excited to take your business to the next level. You can apply at www.recruitmentcoach.com forward slash breakthrough. So... Then you talked about the SF experience, and obviously there's the financial uh, remuneration element of that. But what are some other uh, elements that are, that that encompasses? Well, I'll just uh, consult my glossy brochure. So this okay. this is the SF experience. Um, oh, cool. So I mean, first thing to say is we actually put together a dedicated um, employer brand. Looks completely different. Like you can see, it looks nothing like our normal branding. Um, this is, um, I suppose, partly to show uh, the level of commitment that we have to our employee experience. Um, but a few different things, really. I mean, as I said, the first thing and the most important thing is being an environment where people can be successful. Uh, we're, we're a high-performing team. Uh, our, our top billers are um, very experienced. They generate a lot of business for other team members as well so that people coming in can really hit the ground running, get up to speed. We're part of a wider um, portfolio that has um, you know, very high-performing people as well. So it's quite common that people will come to us and say, you know, I'm a top biller in my business. I do 250 to 300K a year. 
And, well, you know, that's just, you know, right in the middle of average in our business. So it starts with being able to show people that this is an environment where the bar is high and you will learn and you will you will be successful. Um, we uh, have really good tenure as a result of that. You know, people come in and, of course, when you're earning money and you're doing great things, then, then you stay. Um, so average is seven years across our um, 80 people. Everybody bills, um, which is another driver of that, that high performance culture. And, um, you know, not to keep talking about autonomy, but, but that is one of the biggest drivers. And, and I, I think we do that in a way that um, it, it is genuinely has an impact on people's ability to, to succeed because it's one thing to have flexibility around working hours, but it's, uh, giving that intellectual autonomy and freedom is mm. quite a different thing. And, and that's, that's really foundation number one. Um, yes, as I said, earnings, um, you know, there's lots of things there. Um, top quartile earnings is a commitment that we've made to all of our people. We um, regularly benchmark and adjust our packages to make sure that we stay there. Uh, very generous parental leave. Um, we've recently launched uh, a flexible maternity leave as well, which um, is something that it's an option. Uh, some women like the idea of it, some women don't. Um, I did it personally myself um, so that uh, I could still take my six months maternity leave, but spread it over the course of 18 months to use it um, in the time and the way that suited me. Uh, we have generous... Mm, um, cool. uh, uh what's it called when the fathers go off uh, paternity leave yeah yeah lost that one uh, we've got a zero percent gender pay gap um as i mentioned we've got the employee ownership scheme um you know lots of great benefits that i won't i won't bore you with um 31 days holiday uh tons and tons of stuff that you know lot, lots of businesses you know have have some of these things but i think having the full package together of not only giving people that great work-life balance, but also being in an environment where they they will earn more money than they've ever earned and because they're billing more and they're achieving more, I think it's the combination of the things together that that makes it interesting for people. Love that. That's really cool. Um, tell me, like, the intellectual freedom that you mentioned, um, what happens in a case where somebody, where, let's say, the the leaders or the managers disagree with the direction someone mm -hmm. wants to go, yeah. right? They're like, I'm going to go, I'm going to do this. Yeah. And, you know, you're thinking, mm, I don't think that is going to work out. Mm -hmm. Then what, what happens? You just let them make the mistake or, or figure it out. And then if they are, if it works, then great. And if it doesn't, then you reassess. Yeah, or... exactly. So, you know, you have to get in an environment like this, you have to be very good at coaching uh, and again, that, that's been an, uh, a very important change in the way that we run the business. We don't tell anymore. We coach and we guide and we mentor. And, uh, you know, it's happened on more than one occasion where somebody's come to me or to one of the MDs or to one of the directors and said, I want to do X and here's, here's Y. And we'll ask questions. Um, what do you think about this? What's your plan to mitigate the risk it creates over here? And I would honestly say that 90% of the time they have actually thought about a number of things. And I think that sometimes when you have to be very aware as a, as a leader that you're not always the best at answering something, you're not always the best judge of something. And there've been more than one occasion when as a top team, we've been 
you know, scratching around trying to think of something. And then we've gone to the, the next layer down and said, what do you think? And they've suddenly come up with a load of ideas that you think, oh, wow, we would have never thought of that because we don't have the perspective you have because we don't work with the, you know, the, the team that you work with. So there are some good judgments there. And um, there have been instances where somebody has wanted to do something that I categorically think is wrong. And I have guided them. I have suggested when the coaching hasn't got them to the answer that I've wanted, I've told them, um, this is my opinion. However, I am backing your judgment here and you have my blessing. Go off and, and make it successful. Prove me wrong. So um, when push comes to shove, unless it's something crazy, you know, or something that's going to undermine the quality of our business or damage our people or, or our customers, which, you know, it isn't because we've, we've got, you know, sensible people. But unless it was something crazy, we will always back the judgment of those individuals that we're giving that trust to because, you know, let them prove, prove us wrong. And if, if they don't prove us wrong and it turned out that we were right, well, then they've learned a lesson, haven't they? And they've got that experience. And then one day when they've got somebody coming to them saying a similar thing, they'll be the person providing that coaching and having that lived experience from themselves. And it, I see it all as part of the learning curve. If you don't let people fail, then how are they ever going to learn? How are they ever going to get to the stage where you know they can be giving that advice to the next layer down? Absolutely, 100%. Um, so in terms of this doubling of uh, the average billings over over three-year period. Were there any other, apart from creating this culture, like a coaching culture and um, empowering people, you know, giving them that autonomy and the support, which then, you know, inspires them to want to, like, to, to perform at their peak, were there any other changes or strategies that you implemented that have contributed to that um, result? Yeah, a few. Um, we've made a more concerted effort to move up the food chain in terms of the seniority of roles that we work on. Um, so we launched an yeah. executive business in uh, January 2020. So, you know, into their third year now, and you know they are um, up to being about 10% of the business in terms of net fee income. So that's had uh, some impact. Obviously, as, as we've created an environment where people can grow and develop they've also moved up the seniority of their desks um working you know tracking as their candidates develop you know tracking up with them as well which then obviously helps increase each of those individuals average fees um but i, I think that the final piece and you know in addition to that autonomous environment has really been about um capitalizing on and celebrating successes when people believe that something is possible they put a different amount of energy into trying to make it possible for themselves. So, you know, back to that point about being in a high performance environment, when you see somebody else doing something brilliant, you know, it's possible and you want to do that and you want to try and then you succeed. And then the person next to you thinks, Oh, hang on, Bob's doing it. Maybe I can have a go. And so you only, you only need one success that you celebrate and you shout about and you publicize. And I think we've got quite good over the years at really, um, getting the right groups of people together and, and sharing stories and saying, oh, go, go and talk to that person because, you know, they just did something you might be interested in and inspiring people, not, not through trying to be the most inspiring leadership team because um, I think if all the answers come from the top and all of the role models come from the top, 
it, you know, it gets quite boring and quite stale quite quickly. It has to come from within. People have to see their peers being successful, people they can relate to, people they're sitting next to every day, people that they're friends with who they catch up with on the weekend. And those are the stories that are the most inspiring because they might not be the biggest or the grandest stories, but they're the ones that people can relate to and that give them that belief that they can then go and do the same. And it's lots and lots of tiny steps that all adds up to, you know, a bigger impact over the longer term. Sarah, I love that. It's so um, true that, you know, people's belief in terms of what's possible has a massive impact on their performance and, you know, uh, becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy in a way. If you, you know, if you see, oh, well, if Sarah can do it, then, you know, maybe I can do it as well. You've got that role model, that reference that, makes it possible. Um, I've got a story about that in a second. What, how do you celebrate those wins and share those success stories within the business? Yeah, um, lots of different ways. Um, I'll be honest, I uh, don't tend to go out on, you know, we've got most of the business out on a celebration this afternoon. I tend to leave them to it, not cramp their style. Um, but, you know, lo lots of different layers of things. You know, we we do the usual um, team get-togethers um, pretty much every month. Um, we, we we take the time to have at least an afternoon, if not a whole day out together, um, <coughs> let off some steam, celebrate um, the hard work that's gone before. Uh, lots of communications around the business as well, sharing what's going on, sharing successes. Um, each of our uh, leadership teams have uh, lots of comms that they do in their own businesses in terms of um, Monday meetings, Friday meetings. Um, I, I think it's about constantly talking and communicating. Um, somebody once said to me a long time ago, you can never communicate too much. And it, and it really is true. Yes. No matter how many times you say something, say it again, say it again. It, it, you know, it can't hurt. Say it in a different way. Say it if you sent it via an email, say it verbally next time mention it in a video, um, you know, mention it in a face-to-face and -face. Um, keep reinforcing the messages because, um, you know, each time, even if only one person of the 20 that you're talking to uh, listens and retains it, well, that's one person that, that you've reached in that moment. So um, lots of different things. Uh, as always in a, in a growing business, you, you have to keep evolving these things. So we've actually just hired uh, an, a dedicated employee engagement manager to start with us next month, whose job it will be to help us um, do even more of these things and create even more new ways to you know, create that fun environment, really have that um, culture of celebrating successes, uh, make this a hopefully even better place to work um, because you have to keep things moving. You have to keep things fresh. Um, and as I said earlier, when it, when it's the leadership team doing it, well, you know, we've only got so many ideas in our brains and once we've used them all, you have to bring in some fresh, fresh energy to, to mix things back up again. Absolutely. I'm just curious um, how people within the business find out about those success stories, how it's, you know, is it, um, is there an awards day or is it like via Slack or Teams or, you know, is it during team meetings? Like what's the channels that these stories would be shared so that if someone in another office or another team has done something amazing, how would I get to hear about it? 
Yeah, it's a whole mixture. Um, so we make sure that our peer groups get together across all the different businesses. So, mm-hmm. you know, if I'm a qualified finance consultant in Birmingham, I want to be getting together with all of the other people um, doing a similar role to me in the other regions as well, so that we're all talking about what's going on in our market. And we do that at, at, at different levels. Um, and, you know, the managers and directors will get together, the senior management team will get together and 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 always the first order of business is let's go around the room and talk about what's going on. What's good, we also share about what's not going so well. Um, one, because pe- other people can learn and not make the same mistakes. But two, most of the time, everyone else in the room nods and says, oh, I thought it was only me. And of course, you know, it takes some pressure off. Um, so a lot of it is getting people together. Um, we talk a lot in our business. I'm sure, you know, lots of recruitment firms are the same. There's just a lot of picking up the phone. Let me just tell you this. Let me just tell you that. Oh, just a quick one here. Just a quick one there. We send around a company email um, uh, every month with all of the success stories. We uh, have Monday morning meetings. It's at all different levels. You know, people retain information in different ways. And so we have to do a bit of everything to make sure that um, we're hitting as many people um, as possible. Great. I'm such a huge believer in this, Sarah. Like in our... Uh, coaching groups, we always start the meeting by celebrating wins. People need to bring an achievement to that, you know, and then someone else uh, has just won, you know, a new retainer or achieved a personal best. And then it's like, oh, wow, how did they do that? And then there's lots of learning opportunities from that. But it also, as you say, creates this idea of what you know, what is possible. Um, I used to do this board breaking workshop where I would get people to like smash wooden boards with their with their bare hands and uh it was it was definitely about that idea of doing something that is scary and intimidating and that you know maybe you've never even thought was possible before but then once you've done it realizing that you know wow you know what other things do i think are impossible that you know that i could totally do if i was you know if i believed in myself and pushed outside my my comfort zone. And uh, I was doing this workshop in Amsterdam once and I asked like, okay, who's gonna go first? And the the sales director, of course, like stood up immediately because he was like, well, I'll, I'll do it. And so he came up and then he tried and he couldn't break the board, which first of all, worried me because I thought, uh oh, this whole thing is going to, this whole metaphor is gonna fail. Um, after a few tries, I was like, okay, Ian, why don't you go sit down and let's give someone else a try? Luckily, every other person then managed to break the board. And so then back to Ian, he had to break it that time. But of course, he'd just seen his whole team do it. So there was no way that that board was not going to break when you know he approached it the second time because it was you know, it was, he had all these examples, these references that it was, uh, it was possible. And if they can do it, then I can do it too. Um, Sarah, what are your plans for continuing the, the expansion at SF? Uh, yes. So we are expanding geographically. Uh, we are looking for, uh, talented individuals and businesses to back in other regions. Um, we're focusing primarily on the build out of finance and two of our newer divisions, tech and engineering. Um, but I think the most important thing as we grow is really 
making sure that that caliber of individuals that that we're bringing on board is is right and it allows us to retain that you know very mature flexible culture that we have um so that's the priority and uh, we'll hope that we find the right people in the right places and are there particular um geographies or sectors that you're targeting that you want to um, prioritize as you're expanding or? Yeah, I mean, we're focusing on on the UK right now. Uh, We will Mm -hmm. expand internationally over the longer term, but um, Mm -hmm. we'd like to, we're we're quite heavily focused on the Midlands. So we'd like to move north and we'd like to move south is the obvious Mm -hmm. two directions to go in, (laughs) not really anywhere else you can go. Um, So we'll start there for now. Okay, awesome. And so um, if there are listeners who are interested in, you know, learning more or being part of this, then how, how should they uh, reach out? Uh, yeah, uh, look me up on LinkedIn, Sarah Demma, SF Group. Uh, I'm always uh, happy to respond to a message. Um, yeah. Okay, simple. That sounds awesome, Sarah. Is there anything that you had wanted to talk about that I haven't asked you about today? No, all good. All right. Well, I've really enjoyed meeting you and thank you so much. Uh, So many fantastic ideas. Uh, I've got lots of, of notes based on our conversation. So, well, thank you, Sarah. Have an awesome day. Thank you. You too. See you later. Thank you so much for listening to The Resilient Recruiter. If you've enjoyed the show, the best way you can show your support is to click that subscribe button. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time.